Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's edition of Health Matters. Well, this evening, I'm joined in the Johannesburg studio by Dr. Charles van Lochrenberg, and he's the Regional Medical Director for International SOS Southern Africa. Charles, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Corin, and thank you very much. It's great to chat again. Well, a reminder that if you need any information regarding Health Matters or if you've missed a contact number we might give out, you can always find it on Facebook. Just go to Health Matters on SAFM. There's also a link there on the Facebook page if you'd like to download a podcast of the show. But if you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za. So if you have any questions, any general health medical questions for Dr. Van Lochenberg, you can call us on 0892 2010 The National Arts Festival in Grahamstown runs from the 27th of June to the 7th of July. The biggest festival on the continent has 3,000 performances, including the best theatre, hottest jazz, awesome dance, great music, lectures, comedy, film, performance art, exhibitions and much more. It's the place to be this winter. Book now at CompuTicket. Visit us online at www.nationalartsfestival.co.za The National Arts Festival. 11 Days of Amazing, in partnership with SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Introducing more savings from Specsavers. Now you can get between 250 and 1,000 Rand off the normal industry price for your prescription lenses. That's right, up to 1,000 Rand off your prescription lenses. Another reason why we are South Africa's leading eye care group. Change to Specsavers for affordable eye care and a whole lot more. T's and C's apply. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, you're listening to Health Matters on SAFM. I'm Karen Key, and this evening we're focusing on general medicine with Dr. Charles van Lochenberg, Regional Medical Director for International SOS Southern Africa. So if you have any questions, you can call us on 0892 10 2010. Charles, I've got a number of things I wanted to just chat with you about, but before we even get there, we have our first caller on the line, Robert in Mpumalanga. Good evening. Uh, good evening, madam. I believe you have a problem with a chronic abscess, Robert. How can we help? Yes, um, it is very true. I'm, I'm very worried at the moment. Uh, I sometimes lose hope in life. I've had this abscess for some time, and uh, it has ended up uh, developing to, I don't know the scientific name. It is on the buttock. What do you call it? Sean? Well, uh, fetus, is it uh, fetus, fistus, fistula? Fistula, the word you're Call looking it. for is a fistula, yes. On, on, the bu- yeah. on the buttock, I think, did you say, yeah, Robert? it is the fistulas. Look, it has been operated three times, and uh, the last time it was operated, it was not done very well, and the doctor was not very sympathetic, and he was not very empathetic, and uh, uh, I told him before he finished that it was not successful. And he asked me uh, whether I wanted to teach him his job. Uh, I took that as being very arrogant, and I didn't want to explain anything further, and uh, it did not heal up to now. My greatest challenge is that I'm not working. I'm employable. I have the skills. I'm very skilled. There is no way I can sit down on a chair upright. So there's no company that would use me uh, that would employ me at the moment. Robert, uh, just a couple of quick questions. Um, how young are you? 
Robert, how old are you? I'm in my mid-50s. Mid-50s. Uh, one of yeah. my mentors, uh, Prof. Harry, always used to start with how young as opposed to how old. Because once you're hitting Madiba age, then it's old. At the moment, you're still, uh, you know, you've got many years there. So I think just for listeners to understand, a, a fistula and, uh, you know, I'll see if I can give you a, a hopefully a better impression of the medical profession generally. It's about a couple of understanding questions. It is a difficult complication to treat. Let's state that up front. So what you've got is a an abnormal pathway that is the drainage pathway of this abscess and the reason that it remains is that a fistula typically develops its own lining so it becomes uh, you know self-sustaining plumbing if I can put it that way and so the drainage becomes continual you're quite correct the management is surgical and it mm. needs to be handled by, uh, number one, a, a qualified and professional surgeon, but number two, yes. a, a doctor that is able to you know, interact with you and give you the type of information and the, the, the general reassurance that's required. You know, around yes. the world, because of yep. the specialized care that's required, there are actually specialized fistula hospitals. In other words, a whole center that is dedicated yeah. purely to the management of this. So my quick advice is, this is not something that can be remedied at home. My quick advice is you need to be getting a referral maybe your general yeah. practitioner can refer you to a different center maybe one of the yeah. centers of excellence so you're in Pumalanga what I would do is you know a central hospital in Nelspruit or maybe you need to be coming closer into uh, to the hub of activity and maybe uh, you know as far as Gauteng even for a specialized surgical consultation uh, and, and further management all right um, I wonder if you would not be able to uh, be in a position to organize for me uh, such an expert. I would certainly love to be able to assist you. It's just not something I can do now on air, but uh, you know, certainly those type of, uh, uh, of referral information uh, we can provide to you afterwards with pleasure. Okay, I do have Robert's cell phone number because he he called in, so I do have that. Robert, I'm going may to... I ask you, may I ask you a question? Is this thing unique? Is it common? Uh, the, the second option is quite correct. So they're quite common, um, and unfortunately, they are often a result of poor surgical management the first time around. So it is uh, in part uh, medically created, and what we need to do now is get you in the hands of a, of a more skilled professional. Okay, Robert, what I'm going to do now, Robert, don't hang up the phone. I'm going to put you back to my producer. Just give him your email address so I can get the information from Dr. Van Lochenberg and I can email it to you. Thank you very much, ma'am. I really appreciated that. Good luck to you, Robert. It sounds like you've actually had a a rather bad run of luck with this thing and hopefully we can uh, put you in the right direction now. Thank you very much, ma'am. Okay, Robert. I think the radio station, you are very helpful, ma'am. It's only a pleasure, Robert. Hold on the line now and you'll speak to my producer now. Thank you. Very okay, much. thanks so much for calling in. Good night to you. Gosh, Charles, it's, it's awful when something like this, it, he says he's had three operations on something like this, and you say initially it could have been medically caused effectively after the first operation not being done correctly. Yeah, that, that's unfortunately often the case. You know, um, certainly abscesses or drainage wounds that tend to require appropriate drainage, let's just put it that way, and they can be anywhere on the body. Um, in his position, it's it's clearly most uncomfortable, it's, uh, it's central, and it's, it's just going to cause him continual discomfort. But, uh, you know, the challenge really is that um, many practitioners out there just don't uh, explain the A to Z of the condition to the patient beforehand. 
and allow them to sort of properly understand the possible risks of the procedure and what they may or may not be doing afterwards. And it's also about, uh, you know, maybe empowering um, um, patients such that that referral step that goes from the good quality gatekeeper general practitioner up to the specialized uh, interventionist, if I can call it that, um, that step is often missed or is too casual. Uh, and then we end up with this type of situation. I think when we talk about abscesses, most of us think, oh, well, you know, that's what you get in your in your mouth, under your tooth, and you dash off to the doctor for a root canal or something. You know, we don't realize that it's, it's a whole group of things that can, like in Robert's case, be very uncomfortable. And it's not just the ones you get under your teeth. It can be anywhere from the heel to the top of the head, and it's essentially a, a, a cavity in the body that has had an infective process for whatever reason, a foreign body or some kind of localized infection, and that infection walls itself off and uh, essentially creates um, a, a localized wound that the body then has sort of sheltered or protected in some way, but it causes ongoing pain and discomfort for a long time. To so the bottom line, for anyone else listening, if you have a problem and you're not happy with what's happened to you after possibly you've had some treatment don't leave it go and try and escalate it to the next best possible person that can help you because you don't want to end up like Robert who's been suffering with this for however many years now it's really not worth it at all if you have a question like Robert did you can call us on 0892 10 2010 0892 10 well, while we're waiting for some further calls to come through Charles there's there's so much we can actually chat about and and, and you know with winter coming along now and we we all hear about these super bugs can you tell us a little bit about it's a mutant gene isn't it the super bug what is this well, it's it's a little bit more than just a mutant gene, and uh, unfortunately, South Africa is uh, one of the world leaders in this particular field in a bad sense, in that uh, we seem to uh, specialize in uh, developing uh, superbugs. Um, what we're really talking about, and, and a bug is not really a helpful term, I think they're the creepy crawlies that wander mm. around the garden that we uh, educate our kids on. Now, we hear um, mostly of this sort of thing happens in hospitals, unfortunately. Yes, That's what we, where we hear most of this coming from. The medical profession is, is both a wonderful source of healing and it creates immense problems at the same time. So um, this is a problem that we've uh, very skillfully created. Um, let's let's kind of tr uh, unpack it briefly. So the typical bug that is uh, treated or managed in hospital is one of is one of many hundreds or thousands of bacteria. So uh, viruses are, are treated in a completely different way. But of the sort of two main infecting particles, viruses and bacteria, it's the bacteria that we're concerned about here. And in in very basic terms, all bacteria are either going to be uh, the, the, an infection that they cause, whether it's something simple like on the skin or something major like a, a pneumonia, um, they will need some form of antimicrobial or antibiotic action to treat them. And if it's mild, your body will do it all by itself. So balanced diet and good health and you'll sort it out yourself. If it's anything more deep-seated or more uh, you know, resistant or more reluctant to depart, then you'll need an antibiotic. And an antibiotic is very simply a drug that is directed at nuking a particular part of the life cycle or the mechanism of that particular bug. Um, and if we choose our antibiotic appropriately, then the antibiotic is like the you know Luke Skywalker's lightsaber. It comes <laughs> in and zaps it and arrivederci. All right. If you come along and you've got a simple bug and you decide to treat it with a nuclear bomb, the equivalent of you know the the the, the US submarine missile, then you'll probably kill the bug. 
but you may do a whole bunch of damage to uh, uh, the, either the rest of the body or certainly an organ system or part of the body. And more importantly, bugs are learning creatures. So bacteria will, in their own mode of survival, they will develop a strategy that will uh, program themselves to resist the insult of that antibiotic. And if we are using an antibiotic indiscriminately, we effectively educate the bacteria to be resistant to that antibiotic. In, there, in there, has, there has been quite a lot of talk over the last few years about the overprescription of antibiotics. That, that oh. pe- people will, I mean, you know, you can't always blame the doctor because people will go to the doctor. Well, because people go to the doctor and say, I've got whatever sore throat, or so I need an antibiotic. Did they hold a gun well, to the doctor's <laughs> head and okay. force him I was, or her I was, to I was trying it? to be kind of nice. Don't remotely be nice. I've got oh. a, this is the emergency professional who's got a big <laughs> issue with his colleagues over an inappropriately prescribing antibiotics. I was desperately looking around this, this uh, studio for my soapbox but I see it's been removed. <laughs> well you can st- find a um, chair, stand on a chair. So if <laughs> we imagine I'm standing on my antibiotic soapbox um, essentially the healthcare profession is singularly responsible for uh, antibiotic resistance in my very humble opinion um, and it is a function of not managing the expectations and the requirements of your patient group um, yes I understand that it can be very challenging if Mrs. Jones from Constantia Clough comes charging in and demands you know, the latest antibiotic that she's read about in uh, who knows what magazine um, for her little child um, but the correct healthcare pr- uh, response is uh, all about uh, let's understand what the nature of the infection is. 9.5 out of 10 of these kiddie school-acquired infections are going to be viral in nature initially. They certainly don't need an antimicrobial. They may need an antimicrobial down the line. If this is one of the few infections that becomes a little bit complicated, we develop a little sinusitis or an air infection that needs proper antimicrobial therapy. And let the, let the healthcare professional, with all those years of training direct their uh, their sort of selection from the menu quite simply to go back to your superbug question if we educate the bug with a random selection of very powerful antibiotics all we're doing is we are creating um, a an infective particle that has developed a defense mechanism that essentially means that we are running out of weapons and in the South African hospital context uh, we are in a situation in certain uh, intensive care units where we are literally down to the last nuclear bomb. It's literally that bad where we've got uh, significant antibiotic resistant infections where if they don't respond to antibiotic Z, uh, the patient's going to die. Um, and we've uh, effectively used up all our options. So what is the next step? What, is, what can we do? You know, uh, that's... that's is it sm- too late to come back from this now? That's for smarter minds than me to develop. I think oh. uh, it's probably not... Uh, I, I like to, you know, naively think it's never too late. It's really around a, a, a widespread education strategy amongst healthcare professionals and the, the patient or the consumer alike. And it's about developing very, very rigorous and strict uh, infection control and uh, formulary use protocols such that the doctors are guided and steered and and maybe also shielded from uh, these very vicious and aggressive uh, patient demands and and maybe it needs to be a little bit more of a of a collaborative strategy to uh, you know to select the antimicrobials i think people have heard uh, over the last few years as well about multi drug resistant tb for example where you, your body just the the, the back or the 
virus, whatever the TB thing, Bacteria. just doesn't it just doesn't respond anymore to to the medication because you, on the head. you know it's the same kind of thing. We're doing the same with antibiotics now. It's exactly the same kind of thing, and and just you know just to uh, you know reassure you there, the TB is a, a very simple bacteria. Nothing viral, nothing exotic, nothing uh, you know um, unusual. It's just a bacteria that uh, takes uh, some significantly long treatment. It is imminently treatable if uh, we don't pick up a, a hugely resistant strain. It does take a significant length of time in terms of weeks and months on a sort of regime of antibiotics to treat effectively, but it is treatable. Um, it's just that when we've got into the situation of spending only uh, a certain number of weeks but not enough for example you know the old adage of complete the course of well, the antibiotic well i was going to ask you that how, how much does that play a part in what's going on now well if you imagine uh, you're on a course of antibiotics for five or seven days that your friendly general practitioner has recommended that might be easier to tolerate if you're told by your doctor that you're treating an obscure pulmonary condition that the doctor hasn't really explained to you very well and you haven't had the luxury of, uh, of an education that allows you to understand fully what tb might be um Taking antibiotics for six months just sounds like a concept that you can't possibly relate to. So after a couple of weeks or months and you're feeling a lot better, um, what's to say that you shouldn't just stop the mooty? And lo and behold, we are having inappropriate lengths of, uh, of TB treatment and we end up with uh, our, our patient base effectively developing these resistant bacteria. And going back to your Mrs. Jones who came rushing in for the antibiotics, what if she doesn't or her little Johnny doesn't finish the course? Does it, is this where this whole problem is also coming from? It's certainly part of the problem, absolutely. So it's, it, it really uh, gives that bacteria an opportunity to recover so the antimicrobial that was selected for seven days is for a reason what it means is we're going to get total clearance of that particular nasty out of the system we're going to have effectively eradicated the infection based on the behavior of the bug and the response of the drug and if we uh, do a half-baked effort even though you clinically may be feeling a bit better and in fact probably end up getting on top of the infection yourself anyway you've still given that bug an opportunity to educate itself against your weapon so bottom line, if the doctor gives you a prescription for seven days, five days, six weeks, just keep taking it for the length of time that he's told you to take it. He knows better than you. Trust it's me. It's about professional behavior. You know, the, mm. uh, the, the, the studio producer says, use this button, this mic, and don't disagree with me. I'm saying, absolutely, no problem. Why would I disagree with a professional that's outside of my field of expertise? Surely the same applies in reverse. Well, one would hope so. You're listening to Health Matters on SAFM. I'm Karen Key, and this evening we're focusing on general medicine with Dr. Charles von Lochenberg and he's the Regional Medical Director for International SOS Southern Africa. If you have any questions, you can call us on 0892-10-2010, Gail in KwaZulu-Natal, good evening. Good evening. Hello, how I can we help question. you? Yes, I'd like to know why the half moons on my fingernails are turning a deep rose pink and round my fingernail, it looks if somebody's taken a red ballpoint pen and drawn. Okay, Rose. Um, a quick That's question. Gail. Oh, sorry, Gail. A uh, quick question. How old are you? 67. And do you have any uh, underlying or any chronic medical diseases that you're taking medications for now? Just to give me a quick sense of, uh, of what we're talking about. Yes, for my heart, um, my high blood pressure and cholesterol. Okay. 
You know, there, there are a number of causes. What you're describing, the changes on the fingernails, are often a, a clue of an underlying metabolic or mineral status that is slowly changing in the body. Uh, very occasionally it can represent a different infective process, but very often it is a, a, an isolated um, element in your diet or an isolated element in a, in a chronic infection that's not being well managed um, that is manifesting. It's like a clue. It's a little Sherlock Holmes flag. The, that, that change is not a disease in itself. Uh, that change is, is reflective of a number of more systemic things that are occurring. They can in fact sometimes be a side effect to certain medication that you're taking. Bottom line, the, the quick advice here is this is not something, uh, number one, that you should be panicking about but certainly you should be getting a defined diagnosis. We need to have a practitioner have a good look at that and at the same time do a clinical examination to make sure that they're not missing anything. So I would be consulting your friendly physician that has put you on your existing medication and have a good follow-up consultation. Make that doctor, make him or her aware of, uh, of these features that you've observed and then uh, and let's see if we can pull the two together. And that's fun because I know my cardiologist, well, was a different cardiologist changed my medication a couple of months ago, so I'm not sure if it was that. It's very, um, it's, it's tempting. It's tempting to blame them. Yes, tempting to blame a change in medication, and that may well be the cause. But uh, uh, certainly, given the wide range, this is a, there's a sort of an A to Z list of changes in the fingernails that you are describing. So for me, mm. the, the the quick solution here is to go back to source and have a conversation with a physician. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Gail. Good night to you. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Solly in Bethlehem, good evening. Hello, Solly. Yes, can you hear me? Hi, how can Hi. I help you? I'm, I'm fine. I would like to know, uh, me and my wife, we are using uh, Veto, Vetomit, like she's trying to conceive, but I uh, would like to know whether is this uh, possible, like we actually are looking for a thin baby. I don't know. This is funny, but uh, we are very disparate for a baby. So we w went on the internet to search for any prescription that we can use. We found that we can use Plumid. But when we go to the pharmacy, they told us that no, there's no Plumid anymore, but we can use the Votomid. I would like to know whether is this drug is the right one or not. What, what, I didn't get what you were using, Sully. What, what is it called that, you, that you're taking? It's a Veto. Vet Vetomid. Can I spell it? Yes. It's F E R T O M I D. So F E F E R T O M I D. Okay, so um, Sully, no problem to uh, to give you a little bit of uh, advice here, and and thankfully, uh, you know, I'm a humble emergency practitioner, and I steer well clear of complicated obstetrics because uh, you know kids as the ultimate product are far more valuable than than, than heart attacks, and it's much more difficult to uh, you know develop a good strategy there. But certainly, I understand the the situation that you're describing. The the sort of elementary advice is those drugs that you refer to, both uh, the original Clomid, Vitamid, and there are a number of other options on the market, um, are uh, support drugs that are in a a fairly complicated way is supporting um, the fertility status of your wife and they are changing her hormone profile in a way that it will facilitate egg fertile egg production and uh, hopefully result in a, uh, a successful conception. Now that is not something that one should be doing you know 
hit and miss by by over-the-counter catalog medicine so very simply from from my perspective if one is needing sensible uh, you know family planning advice in this context it is really uh, the specialized world of the obstetrician and gynecologist and uh, you should be having a professional advise you on appropriate fertility treatment uh, because there are so many side effects and other ramifications that can occur in young women um, when utilizing substances like this that it's really just not something that you want to be doing as a sort of a paint by numbers uh, via the internet at all so you know for me the quick answer is that drug may well have a place in a directed fertility treatment strategy that's about the most general positive that I'll say but uh, you need to be working through an ONG definitely okay okay thanks doctor thanks Sully thanks for getting through good night to you you're listening to Health Matters on SAFM. I'm Karen Key, and this evening we're focusing on general medicine with Dr. Charles von Lochenberg, and he's the Regional Medical Director for International SOS Southern Africa. If you have any questions, you can call us on 0892 10 2010. 0892 10 2010. Elroy in Port Elizabeth, good evening. Good evening. Uh, uh, I have a question for, for the doctor. Okay. Uh, my wife was uh, at the medical. Uh, she had uh, many uh, medical operations, but uh, the latest operation was in Livingston Hospital in the Nelson Mandela Bay, Port Elizabeth, uh, whereby I found out Dr. Hannibal injured her liver twice in 2006 and in 2007. I reported this case to the presidential hotline, and so it was more than, uh, uh, I found out in 2000 Elroy? Oh, we seem to have lost Elroy. Oh, yes, no, we have definitely lost Elroy. We'll have to try and get Elroy back. Gosh, I don't think we want to get into um, details of doctors no, and things like that. We, but yeah. what we could maybe do, Corin, and then uh, if Elroy does come back to us, we can just say that we have answered the question in a sort of a general way. Um, you know, what I was hearing there is really a, a frustration around a possible complication mm. that's occurred and a particular issue that uh, an individual had with a particular treating doctor. And we see that set of circumstances all the time. And, you know, there are, there are good doctors and bad doctors. There are successful doctors and not so successful. And it's really a function of how they manage that process, that interactive process with the patient. So in this circumstance, um, it's not so much a, a, um, a, a, an anonymous complaint to a pre presidential hotline. There are much closer, much more direct mechanisms in hospitals where there are peer review and quality committees, clinical governance committees in all the hospitals, state and private, that look at the, the general behavior and outcomes of doctors. And you know what I would do is make sure one's worked up the food chain so you know lodge an appropriate complaint at a hospital level if we're not getting any success there at the end of the day the overriding body in South Africa that governs the behavior of doctors and looks after patients is the Health Professions Council HPCSA the Health Professions Council of Southern Africa and they've got a very friendly call center and web service that a patient who's had a dissatisfactory experience with a professional they can lodge a complaint there and then the Health Professions Council will investigate appropriately so there is a certain a mechanism that uh, that patients can follow and uh, you know Elroy would be advised to do that great okay hopefully you heard that while he after his phone cut us off MF in Limpopo good evening good evening Karen how are you very well how are you no I'm good uh, Karen uh, I just got two 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 questions uh, the first one is uh, is in relation to the guy who called from Pumalang of this um, 
some doctors they call it peri peri analysis and and some call it uh, futurist or futurist whatever the, the the term is. I I've got a similar problem, and mine has been like a yearly thing. Every year I know that oh, comes January, I'm on it. So you get this abscess as well. Yes. Okay, and does, uh, does yours goes away though, or what? What is happening to it? No, it it it, it like it's, it's it's recurring every year. It has been going like all, every year. It will come once a year, and I'll go for a surgery and whatnot. But recently, I, I I if if you don't mind me calling the name of the doctor, I met uh, Doctor Wise. He in twenty ten. So since then, it hasn't been recurring. But now and then I get agitations on, if you know, the area that, that I'm talking about. And then and we will feel like something is coming up on top or not, and then and it's like dying, and then it comes up. But it's not as, as painful as the original um, abscess uh, was. Is this quite common, Charles? You know, the the quick response is, uh, you know, a similar message to our earlier mm. caller in that the answer is generally yes, surprisingly common. Uh, there are a number of underlying medical conditions and general b- lifestyle or body conditions that can predispose to these type of abscesses recurring. Uh, you know, many of them relate to, uh, for example, underlying metabolism. Uh, diabetics, for example, are particularly prone to them. Uh, local skin conditions, uh, body weight, for example. There are lots of different contributing factors. At the end of the day bottom line is still the same thing a quality healthcare professional in this case again surgical tr- surgically trained uh, who's got experience in managing chronic abscesses particularly for example these perianal abscesses they're, they're difficult conditions to manage effectively and they really do uh, prove quite troublesome to patients so this is about uh, if you're not getting relief it is about upgrading your level of care and getting a referral in to a higher level of expertise which is certainly available in the bigger centers in South Africa well as he was saying that he found a doctor who is helping him it's not recurring now but he feels almost like an agitation on the area where it was yes. and that's what he's wanting to know about this agitation it feels like something's about to come up but it doesn't always it, it doesn't it doesn't come since 2010 mm. the last surgical that i had it, it nothing ever ever came out well that's like fantastic it, it, so you you actually found the right doctor there yeah we've got a happy yes, we've yes, got a happy yes, ending okay. here and uh, you know, any residual residual symptoms or residual features like uh, you know subtle sensations, they can be explained away in many different ways. You know, small nerve pathways that have been created, small sensory experiences that are left over following surgical incision into areas. Some of these are, are, are sometimes just quite strange anomalies of, of post-surgery. And uh, you know, once again, we could be creative and try and explain them, but we'd probably be making up the answer. To be very honest with you, um, this is around actually just getting a satisfactory answer from the practitioner and they need to give you the necessary reassurance but the fact that it hasn't recurred for me you're already in uh, you know green for go it's wonderful three years and you're yes, doing yes, okay yes, I'm, 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 I'm very i'm very relieved on, on that side i just said i wanted to know if there's any other referral that you guys can give me so that i can be in a position to just uh, get it done with Okay, well, this, uh, this is the agitation that I, I, I'm talking about. Okay, MF, I tell you what, I'm going to put you back to my producer, give him your email address, and we'll see if we can uh, get some information for you. So don't hang up Karen, the phone. Yes, Karen, if you if you don't mind, can I? Uh, like I said, I had two. 
Oh, oh sorry, sorry. Like, okay, I, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, can, can I go to the second one? Yes, absolutely. Um, my wife and I were not happy because of one simple thing, my snoring. Is there any mm. pharmaceutical or medical uh, things that one can do to ensure that it's minimized or is, 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 is dealt with uh, accordingly? There are lots of wives sitting out there now waiting for this answer with bated breath. <laughs> Charles, do tell. <laughs> I'll, I'm, I'm going to have to pace myself carefully through this one. Um, yeah. And, uh, and you know, for, for, the, for the wives that snore, then we'll just... No, uh, no, you know, no. We'll, we have we'll to listen to it, Charles. Fair enough. Oh, right, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the diplomatic strategy here, I've, I've been uh, quite, uh, you know, carefully chastised on this. So mm-hmm. snoring is um, a particularly common problem. Um, it is um, well shared amongst the genders, I would uh, hesit- uh, quickly hasten to add. Thank um, you for that, but, you know, <laughs> Just to give you some, uh, some reassurance. But it, it certainly does need to be unraveled by a healthcare professional. So it's not yes. something I would tackle as over-the-counter if it is a mm. chronic and significant problem. The type of things that we'd look at just very quickly, you know, from a, a general sleep hygiene point of view. So we'd look at basic medical things in terms of your upper respiratory tract we would need a quick clinical examination to make sure we're not talking about you know so chronic sinus issues chronic adenoid issues uh, disturbed nasal septum you know you were a boxer at uh, at college and you've got a deviated mm. nasal, se- nasal septum or something anatomical in other words that's contributing to abnormal airflow we'd get rid of all of those causes number one then we'd move into things that are promoting uh, excessive nasal passage mucus or secretions excessive secretions which could be medical related that could be drug side effect related that could be diet related so we need to unravel that little story again with your healthcare professional and then we would look at basic sleep hygiene things you know things like lifestyle habits uh, smoking habits for example uh, humidity of air for example sleep positioning for example uh, you know pillow use etc and there's a there's essentially one of those 18 things or a combination thereof is going to be what's causing your snoring. I'm very confident to to tell you that, but I obviously couldn't tell you which one without going through a, a, a proper you know history with you. So it's yeah. I think the the basic message here once again is don't try and tackle this with some over-the-counter cough drops and a visit to the pharmacy. Um, yeah, if I've, it is I've a, failed on that. You know, that's, that's a lot of you're money. doomed. You're doomed to failure. This is a yeah. uh, get a professional referral by your friendly general practitioner, possibly to an ear, nose, throat specialist, an ENT surgeon, uh, so mm. that they can do a proper examination and exclude anything anatomical. And then you can move back to the world of the general practitioner and let them just unpack your, your sleep hygiene circumstances. And uh, uh, I'm fairly sure that they'll be able to get to the bottom of it. I'll be, uh, thanks for that advice. I'll be glad if you guys can give me some referral uh, in, in, in both of these uh, things that okay. I can attend to. Okay, MF, just don't, don't hang up the, up the phone, just hold the line, and my producer will take your email address from you, okay? Thank you, Karen. Thanks for getting through. Good night to you. Right, off to the Eastern Cape. Colin, good evening. Good evening, madam. Hello, how can we help you tonight, Colin? Madam, I am a diabetic patient. Okay. And now, on the 1st of May, I had a mild stroke I'm sorry on my right that. hand side. Now, the funny thing is very cold and painful. Okay. What, what can, can I get help? 
Certainly. Okay, let's uh, let's just quickly uh, you know point you in the right direction. So we're talking. Did I get it right? Right at the beginning, you said you were a diabetic, and he's had a mild and stroke now. And you've now had a, a, a stroke. stroke. Okay, now those two conditions, as, as some listeners may be aware of, are certainly connected. So, you know, uh, one of the unfortunate complications of uh, the world of diabetes is the cardiovascular system or the, the system of blood vessels, including the blood vessels going to the brain, um, are damaged over time and they are more prone to either becoming blocked or rupturing and then they cause the stroke, which is essentially that, that bleed or blocked vessel in a certain area of the brain. The fact that we're even having this conversation over the phone confirms what you say that it was thankfully a, a relatively mild event and you're obviously making a, a fairly reasonable recovery which is which is a fantastic circumstance to be in number one uh, we're looking at a at a lifetime of very tight diabetic control so the physician that's looking after you uh, will be paying very special attention to making sure that your diabetes is managed as optimally as possible the symptom that you're complaining about where you're describing these unusual sensations the cold features the uh, the, the unpleasant circumstances in the area of the body that has uh, some residual loss of sensation the, the the previously paralyzed or the currently still paralyzed area or partially paralyzed area um, We've got a, a, an unusual situation here in the sense that both the blood supply system, so the blood vessels, and the nervous system, so the sensation to that area, are both systems that are affected by the diabetes. So an abnormal set of, uh, an abnormal blood flow in that area, which is caused by uh, vessel spasm or vessel dilation vessels getting bigger and smaller in that part of the body can cause that sensation number one and number two just the nerves supplying that area can also conduct uh, various strange signals that the the body is not altogether happy with there are some medications that your physician can prescribe that will help to mask some of those symptoms they do need to examine you properly and get a handle on whether they think the symptoms are blood vessel related or nervous system related, and then they can direct their treatment accordingly. But uh, the quick advice uh, after that long explanation is uh, uh, consulting that same neurology expert, the doctor that was treating you at the time of the stroke, and uh, report this particular symptom, and they should be able to prescribe something that will offer you some degree of relief. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, Colin, and good luck to you, and get better soon. Thank you. Thanks for getting through. Good night. Right, off to Ladysmith in KZN. Poppy, good evening. Yes. Hello, Poppy. How can we help? Uh, it concerns my mom. Okay. She is 74 years old at the moment. It all started with her feet. Uh, like two years back, she complained that in winter, she can't feel her feet, the bottom part below her leg. And all of a sudden, there was like this blood stains all around her lips. Then this year, she has got this blood cloth sort of under her feet. And she says it's very painful. Like the past three days, she could hardly step on her feet. She went to the doctor and the doctor indicated that they gave her the wrong tablets for her blood pressure. And we are not sure as to whether that is it. We we want to know what is it that can be done. Because the doctor has put her off those tablets. Well, um, probably let's see if we can help you briefly on that. And uh, you'll 
you'll be pleased to know that the the type of problem that you're describing with your mother is not uncommon if I'm piecing together the clues correctly we've yeah. got uh, you know these features can uh, be described by a number of different medical conditions so something as old-fashioned as, as uh, what we used to call chillblains uh, something as modern as a drug side effect and something in between those which could be um, a, a vascular related uh, complaint in other words as we get older um, many uh, patients suffer from diseases of the blood vessels as the blood vessels get older they are less able to respond to just the normal demands of our of our body's plumbing and they need some attention particularly if she has any underlying medical condition to make that vascular uh, phenomenon worse the, uh, the the general answer here is a doctor that is telling you that a certain tablet is wrong and removing uh, antihypertensive medication or medication for blood pressure sounds to me like you've only got half the story done so in other words you need to either be seeing the same doctor again but uh, I suspect you might need to be seeing another doctor who leaves you with a bit more of a positive story um, treating high blood pressure is not usually a situation that goes away so it's more than likely that your mom needs to remain on some kind of high blood pressure treatment so she needs to be correctly examined correctly diagnosed and have the appropriate drug prescribed uh, which will number one keep the blood pressure under control and number two won't aggravate the peripheral condition that you're describing at the same time uh, under the eyes of the doctor one may be able to diagnose in fact a separate condition and uh, provide something that can uh, afford her some relief but I wouldn't let this go because this is going to be something that's going to affect her her general day her general quality of life um, so you certainly need to be seeing a healthcare professional just to uh, you know get her some comfort okay doctor thanks for that okay Poppy good luck to your mom Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks for getting through. Good night to you. Colin in Plettenberg Bay, good evening. Oh, is that Colin that we've lost? Colin, are you with us? Hello, Colin? No, I don't know. I think we might have lost Colin. Oh, Colin is there? No, he's not. He's gone. Right, let's go off to also Lady Smith in KZN. Ismail, good evening. Good evening, Colin. Hello, hi. How can we how help are you? you? Doing? I'm very doing very well. How are you? I'm okay. Karen, I have a little uh, issue. Uh, I, so I'm 65, first of all, and I've been suffering from hay fever or, you know, chronic hay fever for many, many years. And what happens is that I build up mucus in the throat, you know, and it gets hard and sometimes you're sort of choking on it. And then you've got to hock it right off. And, you know, it comes up in a hard lump. And once that happens, then you start to sneeze. Okay, Shal, any help for Ismail? Um, I'm waiting to get to the question. Oh, okay, is there a um, question there, Ismail? Have you, have you got a question there, Ismail, or is it just a general advice on uh, on management of your hay fever? Yes, what's happening is that, you know, the, this, when this lump uh, builds up into your, uh, you know, the mucus solidifies, and then it troubles you like mad, and then when you hawk it out, and when, the, when that gets cleared, then you start to sneeze one way, you know, you sort of your tracks are open. Right. 
Okay, well, I think, you know, for me, we're describing two things here. So let's assume for the moment that the diagnosis of, of hay fever, whether it's a seasonal or allergic, um, we don't yet understand necessarily what the cause is in your situation. Um, but for the moment, the, the condition is, is a given. So you're suffering from this chronic, quite challenging to manage condition that is, uh, you know, a hyperreactive, excessively reactive uh, upper airway and other parts of your immune system such that all the parts of the body that are producing mucus and fluid can sort of overreact in an allergic-like way. Uh, and whether the trigger is weather or season or dust in the air or who knows what, those are the things that are contributing. You will, as a, as a long-time sufferer, you'll hopefully know some of those triggers. Now, that element of the condition can certainly, in 2013, be well managed or reasonably well managed by your healthcare professional. You need to be uh, put onto, or first of all, we need to uh, you know, unravel the cause if possible. It may involve some sensitivity testing, a little bit of a decent clinical history, and try and establish if there's some obvious triggers that can just be removed in terms of, you know, we've had patients that have suffered from you know, interminable hay fever for years and years and years, and then have had a single item removed from their diet, um, and lo and behold, it she's gone. So it just involves, first of all, a decent interaction with a doctor who's skilled in unpacking uh, allergic conditions, which may well be either your general practitioner or a referral to a, a particular physician. So that's number one. And that control of the hay fever is certainly uh, possible. It may involve a spectrum of medications, which will include you know, certain steroids, which are dampeners of the immune system. They, they function like anti-inflammatories and a number of other drugs that can control the mucus secretion. The response that you're describing is really a function of reactive airways that are now you know coming back to life following the 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 insult of the initial episode and they're just complaining they're they're reactive parts of your body that aren't well managed they're not well uh, you know controlled by your body number one and therefore you're going to need some medical support to control those i would be starting with your physician and just get that hay fever properly under control i have one issue doctor mm. uh when when the the, the temperature variation you find you start having a running nose. You know, the moment it's cold or when it's very hot, you know, you it goes. You know, you go. You start. To, your hay fever starts to trigger off. Well, I suppose the quick answer to that is. Um, it, there's, there's actually not good data connecting um, obvious temperature changes in hay fever, although some patients absolutely swear by the temperature changes. So it really is a function of, of what is your own personal triggers, and I certainly couldn't disagree with you there. So, you know, you would recognize what is precipitating it in you. And uh, you're going to take some avoidance strategies. I don't think you're in a position to, you know, move to Dubai and just have steady hot weather, you know, 24-7. <laughs> so we're going to have to temperature manage uh, around those set of circumstances and it's often you know hay fever as a overly responsive immune system often responds quite well to uh, prophylactic in other words pre-planning so it's when you anticipate these changes the seasonal changes for example it's around getting back onto those seasonal medications that your doctor can prescribe to just kind of damp things down before it gets out of hand one of the things that uh, uh, you know sort of suppresses it is sign new trend or sign you corn. 
Yeah, these are drugs that are essentially looking at helping to uh, reduce the, the, the level of secretions in the upper respiratory tract. And certainly, if that's one of the triggers, no issue with that. But, uh, you know, acute drugs that are used for short periods of time, remember they become less and less effective over time. And very mm -hmm. often, if used indiscriminately, they can actually make things worse because one can mm -hmm. get sort of rebounds uh, on drugs that uh, actually ha have got a very good place for the first couple of days but need to be switched over to more chronic medication if they're going to be used for a longer period. Thank you so much, Doctor. Okay, Ismail, good luck to you with that. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you, getting Karen. through. Good, good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Well, let's see if Colin in Plettenberg Bay is with us this time. Colin, good evening. Uh, good evening to you, Corin. Oh, hi, there you are. Hello, how can we help you? Well, I, I wonder if our, if our doctor knows a great deal about burning mouth syndrome. Um, I, I've had it for years, and, um, and it gets very, very bad in the evenings where I can barely talk. My, my gum is feeling flamed. I feel like pulling my teeth out, and... Um, and I, I just, I, I understand that, in fact, there isn't a cure for it, but I'm hoping that maybe that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, can you be sort of um, the bearer of good news here? Well, yeah, only in part. So for starters, um, this is uh, not an area of my expertise in terms of managing uh, unusual, and it's a neurological phenomenon that you're describing. So the syndrome, okay. the syndrome really talks to, uh, you know, responsiveness of the local nervous system, the sensory nervous system that is exposed to a particular trigger that's often unidentified and that trigger can sometimes be buried within your own system. So, you know, there's a there's an autoimmune, what we call an autoimmune, in other words, your own uh, automatic pilot, if you like, as part of the triggering mechanism. But, yeah. uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, from my perspective, the um, uh, syndromes like this uh, require... Uh, number one, uh, a reasonable level of identification and then dampening agents that can sometimes facilitate some relief. But for me, uh, you know, uh, as, uh, I'm quite uh, on, uh, happy to, uh, you know, humbly admit that it's not an area that I'm going to be offering you expert advice on. Uh, have you consulted a neurologist for this particular syndrome? No, I haven't. You see, for me, it's often about getting access to the right level of experts. So if the general practitioner that you've been working through at the moment hasn't been able to just pinpoint things, and it's, it's one of those sort of tricky type of um, syndromic descriptions that, that, you know, your GP may struggle with just because of the sometimes the quite exotic medications that we would want to try, I would suggest a referral to a neurologist um, who would then, the neurologists, uh, you know, often regard themselves as the smartest of the medical professionals because they have to absorb yes. this wonderful amount of knowledge I personally you know use a wealth of textbooks on the internet and then I can try and keep up with the neurologist <laughs> but um, but certainly a, a, a consultation with uh, your local friendly neurologist I think might be a, a sensible first step and that's uh, that's possibly the most useful thing I could tell you okay so it, it, it's not a disease or a um um, anything like, like that? Certainly syndromes and diseases are usually in two different boxes. So uh. while, while, while this particular syndrome is certainly not something I'm familiar with, a, uh, a, a, the clinical phenomenon of a condition that is causing recurring discomfort in the mouth uh, yes. A good clinical exam, and I assume you've seen your healthcare professional up front, they will be able to 
pinpoint an infective or metabolic process much more quickly because the clues are quite obvious. So if this was something that was relating to an oral infective process, something more sinister in the oral cavity, for example, uh, you know, something that might have kept you awake at night that you're not telling us but you, you could well be worried about, there are lots of things that could present with that type of uh, feature. Your first treating doctor should easily have been able to exclude those on clinical exams. So we're now starting already to get into the that more uh, esoteric, ethereal world of let's try and find an academic explanation for an otherwise benign set of features, and that's why uh, I, would, so I would refer yeah. yourself to the neurologist. So, 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 okay, so, so not taking a particular kind of tablet for a long time would, would have brought it on? Once again, you're probably in a better position to diagnose that than me. So, um, you know, a long-term side effect of a particular medication, unusual, unless it's something that you're keeping within the oral cavity for a long period of time, you know, some arbitrary cough drop or something that's got an no. irritant to it. No. But essentially something that you're describing that is recurrent of that sort of predictable nature, we're, yeah. not, we're not looking at a, a drug side effect per se. We're looking at something that's a little bit more uh, obscure, which is why for me, this is one of those times that uh, I think telemedicine is not really going to help you. And uh, we need to sit you in front of, a, of the appropriate professional. So uh, a neurologist. You got it. All right. Okay, Colin. Well, I hope that can help you. Thank you very much. Thanks for getting through. Good night to you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. We've got very little time left. Eric and Margaret, if you can be very brief, we can hopefully squeeze your question in. Thank you very, very much, Colin. You're both well out, I guess. Yes, we're fine. Doc, let me just explain my position. I'm a 76-year-old man. um, I've already been in and had three prostate ops. And I, I, I get up between six and eight times a night. And I've actually measured my intake through the day, and I pass virtually the exact amount through the night. And I'm just wondering what else I could do now. If there's if there's something I could, uh, if it's a sensitive bladder, is there something I can take to to, uh, to help me, or what could I do? All right, we've got a minute and a half, Shaw. So the quick answer is difficult. Difficult set of circumstances. Quick advice is uh, repeat consultation with your neurologist and arrive in the morning so that you get them with their A game and take your worst attitude to the clinical exam (laughs) and demand some uh, helpful relief suggestions. You're going to need to be managing your fluid intake carefully, particularly in the latter part of the day, caffeine and other fluid stimulants. And yes, there are a couple of medications that your urologist can prescribe that might be able to assist with some of the symptoms, certainly. So, you know, bottom line, uh, it's a return visit to the urologist. Right. Uh, look, uh, Doc, uh, but uh, uh, I don't even consume a liter of liquid a day. Your body produces yeah. quite enough to keep you awake at night, I promise you. Yeah, it sure is. All right, Doc, look, I'll do that. Many, many thanks for the advice. And, Corin, thank you for a fantastic program. Only a pleasure. And, Doc, good night and thank you very much. Thanks, Eric. Go good luck to yes. you. Good night. And don't forget to take your bad attitude with you, as you as the doctor said. I think that that's one, I think, what, what's come out a lot tonight, Charles, is that Besides going to the doctor, we actually also need to take responsibility for our health. We need to go. We need to ask the questions. Don't just accept things. 
Dr. Zetelli, you need emergency surgery tomorrow for some obscure condition. The answers get a second opinion. Doctors who don't explain what your condition is in language that you can understand so that it makes sense, they draw nice little pictures with pencil until you get the message. Those are the doctors that you want to be seeing. Uh, the doctors that make you feel like they've done you a favor uh, to come down from Mount Olympus to consult you for 32 seconds. I'm sorry, I wouldn't be seeing them more than once. So certainly, you know, be a demanding, be as respectful, absolutely. You know, this is a professional engagement but you do need to demand a reasonable level of reassurance and answers and uh, you know you're certainly entitled to that uh, as, as a patient. Well my thanks once again this evening to Dr. Charl van Lochenberg, Regional Medical Director for International SOS Southern Africa and he's been my guest on tonight's edition of Health Matters. Charles, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show. That's an absolute pleasure, Corinne. Great to chat again. If you need any further information on the um, International SOS interesting organisation, you can take a look at www.internationalsos.com. And if you need any further information about the show, you can have a look on Facebook. It's Health Matters on SAFM or email me at healthmatters at safm.co.za. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening with Time to Travel just after nine. But right now it's time for Stephen Coco with some late night music. Hi, Stephen.